You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Through the summer surge, then the winter surge, and now the vaccine rollout, COVID-19 has been the dominant public health story for a year now. But other health problems haven't just disappeared. This includes valley fever, which, despite being a fungal disease, actually runs parallel to COVID in many ways. Here with more is FM89's Carrie Klein as part of our weekly COVID update. Welcome back, Carrie. Thanks, Kathleen. So as usual, let's begin with a look across the valley this week. Well, Kathleen, um, just as we've been seeing for the past few weeks, the important COVID-19 measures keep improving. So case rates are down, hospital and ICU occupancies keep dropping, and we're finally seeing a slowdown in deaths due to COVID-19. And barring any more death certificate backlogs that result in kind of a jump in the data, there have been 40% fewer reports of COVID-related deaths this week than just last week. Regionally, we've administered 586,000 vaccine doses. And although all counties in our area are still administering vaccines at a slower rate than the state average, we are catching up to the state average. Um, And that reflects the bump in vaccine allocation that we began receiving in the last few weeks. When it comes to the state's reopening blueprint, um, Mariposa County advanced to the orange tier this week, allowing many businesses to expand their indoor operations, but all other counties in our region are still in the purple most restrictive tier. And in reopening news, just yesterday, the Newsom administration announced new rules for breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Even those that don't serve food can open outdoors only in the purple and red tiers. However, bars with no food remain closed in both of those tiers. And then what's the latest in vaccine news? Well, um, one piece of news is that our region has begun receiving the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, This is the third one approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. There has not been a huge allocation to the Valley yet, but that's anticipated to ramp up as time goes on. What's interesting is that because this vaccine is logistically much easier to handle than the others, it actually can give health officials some more flexibility in how they administer it. For instance, in Fresno County, health officials are planning to use that vaccine for mobile clinics and hard to reach rural areas because that vaccine, which is one dose only, eliminates the need for a second clinic. The other big news is that starting Monday, the state is opening up vaccine eligibility to younger adults with chronic conditions or who are otherwise medically vulnerable. So that's anyone aged 16 to 64 with cancer, kidney or pulmonary disease, obesity, diabetes, and many other conditions that weaken the immune system. So that's a huge next step in the vaccine rollout. It most certainly is. Well, now let's turn to valley fever. It's a disease that people can develop after they inhale the spores of a fungus that get kicked up from the soil. The fungus grows throughout the southwest and up the west coast, but ground zero is here in the San Joaquin Valley and in parts of Arizona. Carrie, we've been covering this fungal disease for years at FM89. What's new now? So what's new is the pandemic, which is in some ways complicating the public health response to valley fever, which was already chronically under-resourced. The WNYC show Science Friday recently ran a segment on the battle against both valley fever and the pandemic here in the West, and I spoke about it with the show's science reporter and digital producer, Lauren Young. Here's a segment of our interview beginning with what got her interested in this disease in the first place. 
I'm originally from the Central Valley. I grew up actually not too far from uh, the KVPR studio in Clovis, uh, so pretty familiar with the area. And the San Joaquin Valley is one of the major hotspots for Valley Fever. Um, my mom caught it when she was a teenager working on um, a family onion farm, and that was the first time that I had heard about it. She had told me the story later on, and she got pretty sick with you know lesions, shortness of breath, and um, other symptoms that result from Valley Fever. She recovered, but that story just stuck with me um, ever since. And I've talked to clinicians and patients today and learned so much more about how valley fever is a larger public health issue. Um, thousands of people get sick with this disease. The severity, severity of it can really vary from you know minor cold-like symptoms to lifelong chronic illness. Um, we see, unfortunately, a lot more cases of severe valley fever among Black people and Filipinos. So it's really considered a health disparity in many communities. And I think right now with COVID-19 and the pandemic, it's added a whole new layer of challenges with diagnosing and treating and living with a pre-existing condition. And so I think that, uh, you know, speaking to these public health issues is a very important topic, I think, for, you know, places like Science Friday, which, you know, cover national topics. Well, I'm glad that your that your mother's case of valley fever turned out to be all right. Yeah, yeah. She's completely recovered. She was able to get treated when, when she was younger. So, yeah. That's great. Well, and so most people who get valley fever emerge with either no symptoms or very mild ones. But of course, you know, like with COVID-19, um, valley fever can be very severe. Um, it can spread throughout the entire body. Uh, does this leave valley fever patients more vulnerable to COVID-19? And is co-infection of these two diseases particularly common? Yeah, so not that experts know of in terms of being more at risk of uh, being more susceptible to COVID-19. Um, so right now, doctors at Kern Medical's Valley Fever Institute in Bakersfield, they say that Valley Fever patients are just as susceptible to getting COVID-19 as other people in their age group and with similar health conditions. And in reverse, getting COVID-19 doesn't mean that you are more susceptible to getting Valley Fever. But if a patient has you know, the disseminated severe version of Valley Fever, which you had mentioned, and they do contract COVID, uh, they could be at a a greater risk for complications with COVID-19. So, you know, there are some patients with valley fever who've lost portions of their lungs or lung cavities because of the disease. Um, Those individuals, they might really struggle if they caught COVID-19. And in terms of uh, co-infection, overall, doctors are saying that it's pretty rare. The rates are pretty rare, which is good news. But um, at the same time, it it is possible. Kern Medical has seen some cases. um, And what co-infection looks like is a developing story. Earlier this week, I spoke to Dr. Arash Hideri at Kern Medical's Valley Fever Institute, and um, they had been seeing a handful of blood tests where valley fever is reactivating or coming back in patients when they get sick with COVID-19, which is is kind of alarming, pretty alarming. And so here's how Dr. Hideri explains it. We were in the clinic, and me and my colleague, Dr. Karam, I just jumped to her room. And I said, have you noticed a bump in the valley fever test when you get COVID? And she goes, oh, yeah, I've noticed two today, and I had three the other day. So it was like five cases between me and her. So to me, it's not a coincidence. Uh, is this clinically meaningful or not? At this time, I don't know. But we're going to investigate that. 
So um, Dr. Hayderi, he did say that the patient's outcomes were were good. Um, the valley fever actually subs- actually stabilized pretty quickly as COVID-19 symptoms started to subside. So maybe there's something going on in the immune system there, but they're still trying to figure all that out. Wow. Well, and you also spoke to a woman who did get co-infected uh, with both valley fever and COVID-19. What was her experience like? Yeah. So and Anna Antonowicz, she's a nurse practitioner in Northern California, and she's one of those patients who's experienced d- both diseases pretty much back to back. And so um, she first got a pretty bad case of valley fever where she was you know, bedridden, essentially, in the summer of 2019. And that lasted through fall, winter of that year. And then but the moment she recovered and got over that in March of 2020, she got sick with COVID-19. And so she was treated and uh, for COVID and she started to feel better. And she thought she was in the clear, but then she started to get symptoms again. And this is where her history of valley fever kind of came back into the picture. And um, her doctor weren't sure initially if these symptoms were remnants of the COVID-19 that she was, you know, just going through or if this was her valley fever coming back. Um, Eventually, like her doctors identified it was COVID-19. She was treated. She no longer has COVID. Big whirlwind of experiences, but um, she still feels side effects. And so this is how she described it to me. And I still have times now where my breath catches. I'll be talking to a patient and all of a sudden I can't breathe. Wow, that is really scary. But I'm glad that isn't the experience of most people with COVID or valley fever. Right. So before the pandemic, you know, diagnosing valley fever was challenging enough. You know, it is commonly misdiagnosed sometimes as pneumonia, even lung cancer. How has the pandemic, where many symptoms of COVID are similar to valley fever, at least in the beginning, how has the pan- mm-hmm. pandemic affected how doctors are actually looking for valley fever? Yeah, it's kind of been a little bit of a diagnosis dilemma. As you mentioned, a lot of the symptoms initially can have a lot of overlap. So COVID-19 and valley fever both have the cough and shortness of breath, the chills. Um, so in places like Kern County, uh, for a while, the doctors there had been describing the, the combo of the flu, the valley fever, and COVID-19 as this triple threat that they were dealing with in terms of diagnosing. Um, so this is how Rasha Karan at Kern Medical's uh, Valley Fever Institute, she explains it a little bit further about the challenges that they're going through in terms of diagnosing? You know, for most people everywhere else, they've been dealing with differentiating whether respiratory illness is influenza versus COVID. But for us here, it's three things instead of two. And despite being very different in terms of valley fever being a fungal infection and influenza and and SARS-CoV-2 infection are viruses, they do present very similarly and strikingly similar presentations. Someone coming in uh, before you do the test they could be sometimes impossible to tell apart at the beginning. So um, it really is a challenge. But they have been able to find some distinguishable signs between the two. So the loss of taste and smell and that sore throat often point towards COVID, for instance. And um, there are, you know, with valley fever, you sometimes get rashes and lesions. To our knowledge, you don't get that with COVID-19. Most importantly, COVID-19 is transmissible between person to person. Valley fever is not. You can only get it by breathing in this fungus that's, you know, kicked up from the soil into the air, like, you know, during a dust storm or something like that, or construction work. Um, so, and, but really the definitive thing is, is doing the tests. So, um, you know, Dr. Haideri, Dr. Karan, uh, Karan, they're both saying 
in these communities in you know the valley and in other southwest communities you need to test for these diseases um, because it definitely is still a possibility and let's talk about the the COVID-19 vaccine a little bit so as you said earlier um, it doesn't appear that most people who have had valley fever are more susceptible to COVID Um, So what does that mean for, um, you know, here in California, as the state is about to open up vaccine eligibility next week for those who are medically vulnerable under age 65? What does that mean for those who have had severe valley fever or, or who might still have severe valley fever? Yeah. So um, looking at that list, which is, you know, um, as you mentioned, I think it's rolling out soon. Um, It doesn't sound like valley fever is explicitly stated on that list. Um, However, it sounds like it's, you know, up to the doctor's discretion whether or not you are at uh, some level of vulnerability of of, uh, or higher risk of getting COVID or having complications. So so there there is that. But um, Dr. Haydari did tell me he has absolutely zero concerns for valley fever patients to receive the vaccine. There isn't any known additional risks of receiving the vaccine if you have valley fever. And the CDC has also said that COVID-19 vaccines can be given to people with underlying pre-existing medical conditions. So um, to our knowledge, to the experts' knowledge, there is no safety concerns there. And then, you know, just before the pandemic, it really felt like momentum was building in the field of valley fever research uh, after Mm -hmm. decades of being underfunded. Um, Has COVID-19, has this pandemic affected how that research is going? Yeah, and I know that you, you've done a lot of great work and reporting on on that research that's been going on. And yeah, unfortunately, it has slowed down quite a bit um, in light of the pandemic. And universities and researchers, they've had very limited to no access to facilities during the shutdown. Um, right before the pandemic, I, I um, heard from Katrina Hoyer at UC Merced, who studies valley fever. She had received funding for um, a valley fever study on T-cells, but then she had to put everything on hold, on pause, um, when everything started to shut down. And so this is what she told me back in January about her experience. I basically just wrote my progress report to the NIH and had to explain why we have no data for them over a year. I say this for valley fever, but this is true for pretty much everything that's not COVID-related. We are not making progress on other other diseases right now. And, and I'm concerned about what that's going to do for the other health problems that we have to deal with when we get through COVID. Professor Hoyer also mentioned a lot of her collaborators who are clinicians are pulmonologists, which means they've been pulled away to assist with the demands of COVID-19. That's also slowed down um, a lot of the research questions she's wanted to investigate in relation to valley fever and the commingling with uh, COVID and valley fever. Um, she's still exploring other aspects of valley fever in the meantime. She hasn't like completely stopped everything. Um, so anything that requires not too much lab time or that she could do from home. So she's uh, right now, for instance, she's working with a student on some existing data on wildfire smoke and uh, valley fever. So um, I'm really interested to hear what kind of findings she comes out of with that. Again, that was Lauren Young, a science reporter and digital producer for Science Friday. One other interesting parallel she told me about between these two diseases, even though valley fever isn't contagious from person to person, masks are one of the best ways to prevent valley fever infections because they reduce the risk of inhaling the spores that cause the disease. That is so interesting. Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you, Kathleen. You've been listening to COVID-19 This Week with reporter Carrie Klein. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks to our news director, Alice Daniel, and engineer, Don Weaver. 
We'll be back next week. And be sure to check out our other weekly podcast, Valley Edition. All this and more at kvpr.org.